This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the Fall 2018 UC Santa Barbara Innovator Stories Series, Episode 2. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. Tonight's sponsor is Invoca. Invoca has created an, an AI platform for call tracking and analytics for marketers. So if you have a business that, that wants to drive phone calls, you want to know where those phone calls came from, you want to know which phone calls are making you money and which phone calls aren't, you should be talking to Invoca. They have hundreds of customers, including Lenovo, Samsung, Dish, and Microsoft. Um, check them out. They're, they've been very generous to our program here, and without their support, um, shows like, like tonight would not be possible. So we thank them. Tonight we have Don Soler. Um, I have known Don through a mutual friend for many, many years. It's my first time I've met Don in person, but I feel like I know her because we have such a dear um, personal friend in common. And I'm so excited that she was able to come uh, tonight. This has been years in the making, so I'm very excited. I think I have more questions for her than I've ever had for any other speaker. So we'll see if the students even get a chance to ask a question. Don's a senior vice president of TV music at ABC Studios. She began her career as a music supervisor in the film industry. She has about 86 um, um, IMBD credits. Many of them are movies that you guys are all very familiar with. I'll name a few. The Big Lebowski, Sweet Home Alabama, Dead Man Walking. Believe me, there's a ton of them um, that you're very familiar with. So she joined ABC Studios in 2006, and she had this film sensitivity with music. We all know that film soundtracks have been around for a long, long time, but she brought that music sensibility to television, which was new at that time, and it really changed uh, the way we watch television. The television that you guys know uh, and watch is very different from uh, the television of, of 2006 and earlier. At ABC Disney, she's established a full-service music department. She's responsible for everything, so for the budgeting, picking the artist, figuring out um, how the programming is going to interface with the music, as well as marketing the music with the programming. She's always innovating, so she's perfect for this series. We're going to talk about some of those innovations um, in, the, in the question and answer session. Um, and what she's done is she's taken musically rich television shows like Code Black, Once Upon a Time, Blackish, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder, etc. cetera, uh, and she's really figured out how to cross-market the programs and the music in a variety of different, very creative ways. Dom was awarded Billboard's Women in Music three times, and she was also awarded Best Music Department by the Music Supervisors Guild. She enjoys, so, so I always try to bring in um, successful business people, and you guys know the way I define success is being success in your personal life and being success in your business life. And Dawn is absolutely no exception to that. She's in a very competitive, very rigorous industry, and she's risen to the top of that industry, but not at the expense of her, of her home life. So she, she enjoys spending time with her husband of 21 years and then their teenage daughter and their menagerie, menagerie of pets. So she has a wonderful, uh, solid home life and a, and a fantastic career. That's what we like to see, and that's how we define success. But of all of her accomplishments, so Don has a lot of them. I didn't really list them all off. I suspect the one that she's most proud of is being a four-time winner of the Spartan Bell Award, and I'm going to ask her about that award. Let's welcome her to our class. So good to see you. Thank you. I know you're all wondering the Spartan Bell Award. Like, you're probably Googling it. What is that? Oh, my gosh, she won it four times? Do you want to tell them what it is? 
best dressed. <laughs> she won best dressed in high school. Um, four times. How did you, were you beating out seniors? Well, That's actually, I think I only won three oh. times. Yeah. Um, no, but you, it was per class. Okay. So, so it, you dominated your class. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. The reason I mention that isn't just to be silly and a smart ass. That was part of it. But it also, I think that when you look back into your youth and things like that, so you were a young person, teenager, but clearly you had a fashion sense. You had an aesthetic. You were able to, to follow fashion trends. That had to impact you in the fickle world of music, you know, where, where artists are coming and going all the time. Music genres are changing all the time. When you look back on it, does that, do you feel like that was part of what made you successful in, in your industry, having that aesthetic? Well, I think so because, you know, because I had my own aesthetic and because I won Spartan Bell, it meant that I was unique to myself, um, you know, to be, for people to say, oh, she's the best dressed, you're not dressing like everyone else. And I've always, I have a 13-year-old daughter and it drives me crazy <laughs> when she wants to dress in Brandy Melville every day. It's like, what's your thing, you know? Um, so, <laughs> do any of you understand that? <laughs> I think they got it. I yeah. do. Um, so, so yes, I think that it definitely was, uh, you know, the first um, acknowledgement that I had that I knew that I was different and and didn't and didn't mind being different. Mm -hmm. So your mom is here with us, which I think is wonderful. Yes, she is. Um, and my sister. And your sister, yes, which is also wonderful. And your niece, right? And, your and my niece. Brother-in-law. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> hey, it's a family affair, right? My wife's in the back here. Um, so, so I want to ask you a question related to your mom. So my understanding is um, your mom and dad, before they started families, when they were young people, they wanted to pursue acting or they, they, they thought that was something they wanted to pursue. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, that influenced you in in the sense that you did in ultimately sort of follow their lead after after some uh, after maybe doing some other things you thought well maybe I'll do acting and then you then you kind of detoured into music publishing possibly i think more the influence was my mother because every um every week and our favorite thing to do was she would put on a musical you know, and, and back then, you, were, you, you could only watch the musical that they were showing, but thank God on Saturdays they always had a musical. And my mother would basically perform all the parts for us. <laughs> so I grew up watching someone perform and always musicals. I, and, and that's why I think I love musicals. And then after we would watch it, she would turn on um, a vinyl. Uh, mm. usually Barbara Streisand, and we would listen to her and, you know, sing it at the top of our lungs. So I think that was really more the influence than, than that my parents were actors, although it was interesting and, you know, the, the what-ifs of them, right, I right. think. Well, and it probably surpri it surprised me, I should say, me surprised other people, that you don't play an instrument and you weren't a musician, mm. and yet, you know, you're in this world of musicianship at the highest level. Um, so, so that's where I thought that aesthetic you know, had to be very, very important. You know, I tell people that that's why I'm so good at my job, because I don't play an <laughs> instrument. So I'm not going to talk to them about the, you know, the half note or the, or the, the whatever it is, um, allegro. I will talk to them in emotions and why it's not working for a scene and what's missing that we shot that we need music to do. So right. that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, well, it's, it's working for you. Don't <laughs> stop. 
so we're going to talk a little bit uh, in a little while about women in tech and music, but in entertainment. But I'm curious, you've been in entertainment most of your adult life. Is this something that you would encourage or discourage your daughter pursuing? It's a tough industry. Well, you know, it's funny because um, I definitely wanted my daughter to be a veterinarian. Mm. That is what I wanted her to do. I, you really do have a menagerie. I'm just, that yes, I really do, and she was really good with animals, and I, would, I was hoping that she would be a veterinarian because, yeah, it is a very tough business. So what does she want to do, and what does, is this gift that she has? She has an amazing voice. Mm. So for a while, I was definitely trying to ignore it and avoid it, but now um, my friend John Androsik from Five for Fighting, uh, he took me aside one day and he said, Don, don't quelch your daughter's passion. Mm. Whatever her passion is, you have to support it and love it. It doesn't mean that she's going to go into the business, right. but passion is something you can't learn or buy or, you know, it is. Right, yeah. That's good advice. Mm. And you have a talented niece as well who's quite the singer. So I must, do. So it must run in the family. I do. They should start a, a, a band of eyes. They should. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late. They're both very young. So I thought it was also interesting that you wanted to be a pathologist when you were in high school. That is really specific. You didn't do that for a variety of reasons. Um, something else I liked about your background that I think is very instructive to young people is you, whether this was intentional or not, I think it was smart, you became a production assistant, the lowest level, essentially above an intern, I guess, at a relatively small production house, Kings Road Entertainment. But I think that gave you a chance to really see the business and make a difference, and, 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 and you ended up, that led to your mentor, um, which, I, which I want you to talk a little bit about. But maybe just explore a little bit for the folks that aren't as intimate with your background, how that all went down. It was a little happenstance, it was a little opportunistic, but you took advantage of those opportunities. Well, you know, I got to a point, I, you know, I wanted to be a pathologist, and, and I, for many reasons, I didn't get to go to college, so it was kind of like, okay, what am I going to do now? And I got into the fashion business for a little bit, and that really didn't work, and I decided, oh, I want to be, be an actress. And, um, oh, and I had been a waitress, which I told the group earlier, everyone should be a server. You know, one time in your life, it gives you all the skills that you're going to use the rest of your life. You learn patience, you learn organization, you learn people skills. It's an amazing job. So please do it for six months, please. I agree. Best job ever. Um, but I, so I decided that I wanted to be an actress. So instead of continuing being a server, which everyone in Los Angeles is actor server, I did take this job at uh, Kings Road as a, a, a PA, which is pretty much the worst job you can have. I mean, you are everyone's slave. Um, you get them, I mean, you're just at everyone's whim. But you get to go into every single area. Uh, you know, I got to go to the set a whole bunch of times using my Thomas Guide. You, do any of you know what a Thomas Guide is? Probably not, mm, huh? Google Maps. Yeah, yeah. Um, using a Thomas Guide, uh, I would deliver scripts to actors. It was, it was really, really super valuable. And because I had experience in restaurants and in, um, in the fashion industry, a woman approached me, the woman who hired me, and she said, why are you a PA? You've had so much more experience. Why are you doing this? I said, well, I want to be an actress. And she said, well, why don't you go work for my brother? It's a new business. It's called Music Supervision, and he needs someone who's really organized because he's not so organized. 
and I went to work for him and I was arranging my desk and in walked Peter Gabriel. And I bet none of these kids know who Peter Gabriel is. Some of them do. Yeah. And I thought, okay, it's like if if Lady Gaga walked in on your first day at at the job. That's what it was like back then. So I was like, wow, this is really cool. Um, And after about a month, I realized that this this was my calling because it was very right brain, left brain. There was a lot of business and organization and things to entangle. And yet it had this fabulous creative side. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think just that left brain, right brain um, analysis of your job, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't really even look at their job. In that, like they don't really even understand the mechanics of why it's working or why they're good at that job. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people from the music industry, as we know, are very left brain. Um, and I think finding somebody that can do both is, is invaluable. And the fact that you saw that opportunity early on in, in something that was new, it was emerging. Mm. That's, for a young person, that's often a great inroad. When everyone's trying to figure it out at the same time, that's a good chance for a younger person to, to jump in. But, but, you know, I think if you're a true innovator, there is always right brain, left brain. And I think that that's really important, you know, to always acknowledge, you know, people... Stereotyping people in those ways, I think, is is sort of oh, you're an artist, right? Right. So I think that it is important to always um, honor both sides. Agreed. And I think people themselves will fall into that trap of oh, Mm. I'm an artist. What do I know about finance? Well, know as much as anybody if you really put your mind to it. Right. Um, I want to kind of playing off of the left brain, right brain theme. I know you've described um, music supervising as a craft. So. And that's something you're passionate about. What are some things, what are some either examples or illustrations of music supervision done well that shows its craftsmanship? Uh, You know, it's funny. People, uh, a lot of people come and want to interview me about being a music supervisor. So the first question I ask them is, well, what do you think a music supervisor is? And a lot of time, most of the time, their their answer is, I get to pick music for TV and film. Well, you get to present the menu of music. You don't actually get to pick it. That's usually the director or producer or distributor or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's maybe 20% of it. Uh, the other part of it is knowing how to break down a script, knowing how to, how to put together a budget, knowing how to research a song. Every song has you know, two different, there's a master side, there's a sync side. You have to go and you have to figure out who owns all of those pieces. And in hip-hop music, oh my mm, gosh, mm. you know, on the publishing side, right. you can have 20 different companies that you have to, you know, negotiate with. So it is negotiating all those deals and then being able to fit it within your budget with everything else. And then also, as you're going through the process, and I think this is where the real craft is, is negotiating all the people Mm -hmm. and all of their subjective opinions because the truth is there is no wrong music. Everyone's music is their own. There is just probably music that's right for the overall. And that's what you have to look at, putting always yourself aside. That's a great, great answer. (laughs) You articulated that extremely well. Um, So Beverly Hills 90210, if I have the, and correct me if I'm wrong, was, was really the first project that you had ownership on and control on. That was, and for all of you who don't know, huge show. I'm extremely, extremely successful. Then you had the confidence to go out on your own. You did that for a while. You're a full-on entrepreneur, took on jobs like the Death Spa, 
uh, these wonderful <laughs> boobies that we'd all rather forget. But talk a little bit about that. So you, you had a you were rising in, 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 in stature in the industry. You went out on your own. How thrilling and how scary was that for you to be out there and having to take jobs that maybe you wouldn't have preferred to take, but you took them because it's part of paying the bills? Yeah, I, you know, it was really scary because I was with Peter um, for six years and it was very, very comfortable and he took really good care of me and, and I adored him. He's still a great mm -hmm. friend, but I wanted to, I wanted to get credit. I mean, that was one of the big things. I wanted to get credit and I wanted to own my IP, mm -hmm. you know, innovators always want to own their IP. That's, right. that's, that's part of what drives you. And so, yeah, I did go off on my own. Uh, my mother will tell you that I drove a car that uh, the passenger side window had been broken by somebody and I didn't replace it because I couldn't afford it. Ah. So I would drive from LA on weekends up to Santa Barbara and I'd wear like mittens and everything. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, they, those were tough times, you know, living on uh, ramen and but it was so exciting, and I took every job. I took Death, death Spa, about a haunted health club where a sushi, you know, killed the guy, juggled. <laughs> yes, I took all those jobs. But with each one of them, you, you learned something. Yep. There was always, you either made a connection with some new licensing person, you strengthened your licensing um, relationships. You, you never know who the camera guy or the director of a, of a student film is yeah. going to go on look at Steven Spielberg. Right, exactly. Uh, so yes, it was it was hard and it was scary, but it was also really exciting. Um, and I think luckily I learned early that being scared is okay and when you are just to be aware. Yep. And if you're not ever scared, then maybe you're not stretching, right? You're not really pushing yourself. Right. But I think that's a, another good lesson about networking is you're, you guys are networking right now. You just don't realize it yet. Like you're, you're forming relationships, some of which you'll nurture and be able to leverage in the future, and, and other people will be able to get help from you. But you want to be mindful of it. Like you want to curate those relationships and actually be th thoughtful about it as opposed to just it happening randomly. Mm -hmm. uh, well, let's, let's take the first student's question. You're on. Um, so I was wondering if you experienced any major disruptions in your industry that caused you to change your work role, and if so, how did you adapt to those types of disruptions? You know, these days, every day is a disruption, and I love it because it, it forces us to think in different ways. Um, you know, you mentioned Beverly Hills 90210. When I started that, sh when we were doing that show, no artist would license music television. Television was like the dearth of entertainment. And we had to beg people, you know, to let them have, use our songs. And also, the idea of Beverly Hills 90210 was ridiculous. You would call and you would say, I'm working on Beverly Hills 90210. And within three weeks, three episodes, it exploded. So we had gotten just like these little like two-year licenses so that it would be cheap. We had to renegotiate like five times mm -hmm. because it just grew and grew and grew. So that kind of change became sort of natural to me. But, you know, in the last five years, you know, the media rights and the media that is out there is always a challenge. So we are constantly 
my best friend at my company is my business affairs person, and he and I are always sitting there and noodling, what's next? How are we gonna How are we gonna negotiate this deal? And I think the biggest challenge for he and I is that we work for the Walt Disney Corporation and they have all these rules and they've done it this way for a hundred times. So we're always trying to figure out how to, you know, how to navigate through to get what we want. Thanks. You're welcome. Keep going in your career. So you were out on your own. You did, you did well. Um, even though it might have been scary and a struggle at times. You ended up going to Polygram. Polygram gets purchased by Universal. Now you're really one of the top music supervisors in the industry. Everybody knows who you are. Um, you end up working with Gary Marshall, among others. Can you talk a little bit about Peter and Gary and maybe mentoring, or if there was other mentors in your life and just did the impact that they made, and what did you do to make, to, to make those relationships work? Well, Gary, there's so many things I learned from Gary. Gary was one of those people that he was the mo one of the most authentic people, and I think that's a business style that I learned from him was really to be yep. super authentic. And even if you were delivering bad news, be authentic to who you are and just deliver it in that way. And he had a crew that we were family, and we, you know, he he was so faithful to his family his work family, and I think that that was really important. Um, he also, specifically to music, one of the things he taught me, we'd be in the editing room and I'd, you know, I'd play in this little piece of music against picture, and like, Don, the actors are doing their job. Why do you want to play music? Mm. And that was such a good lesson, because if you watch a Gary Marshall movie, you'll be shocked how little music there is. And that was because he did all his homework before. You know, one thing that you see in filmmaking is that we rush into production. We don't get the script right. We don't mm. get all these things right. He did his homework, and he made sure that his, his base was really solid so that you didn't need music to tell the story that the actor should or the stories should. That was one of the things that I use all the time. Mm. Uh, he was also someone who listened. And, you know, he didn't have to listen. Right. He could have right. just, right. you know. He'd always sit there and listen and he would at least act like he thought about it, and then he would give you his answer. And I think that that's really important, Some, a skill that we've lost, mm -hmm. that we need to get back, is really listening and communicating the back and forth. Uh, and he appreciated everyone's role. And that's why he had such a strong team, because he allowed people to do their yeah. role at their best. Right. And he was, I didn't know him, but, but by reputation, mm -hmm. very beloved. And I think sometimes young people, um, want to, they see a lot of the stereotypical successful person as someone who isn't authentic, people don't love them, they're not really very nice, they don't listen. Mm -hmm. And yeah, those people exist, for sure. But I think more often people that are successful have many of those characteristics. Um, and so don't be afraid to exhibit them. They, they, can, they can work well for you. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about, so this kind of fits in with, with Gary being a very kind, authentic person. <coughs> Um, you're, you're in the entertainment industry. Um, the entertainment industry is really where much of the Me Too movement has sprung from. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it's a, it's a movement that impacts every industry and every business, big or small. Um, do you have any, have you seen any, can you reflect back on the last year or so, have you seen any demonstrable changes, either in behavior or, or, or what's happening in your industry? And then sort of a two-part question. 
Do you have any words of advice for young men coming into the tech industry or the entertainment industry that will make them more effective? Just, just if you could have said this 20 years ago to people, they, you know, life would have been better. Um, I have noticed a huge difference in the Me Too uh, generation, I'm going to say. Uh, I come from a time when we had no voice. And I think that it is amazing that we do have a voice. And I think that it's really important that women um, use your voice. You, ha you have a platform for it. Don't be afraid to use your voice. Uh, you need to advocate for yourself in every way, whether it's the Me Too issue or if you want to raise or if you want to do, some, you want to do a, a side project. It's very important to advocate for yourself and men too. Um, you know, I think we're in an odd time with the Me Too movement right now. I think men are a little unsure of how to deal with women, which I think is just sort of an evolution. But again, I think as men, if you are authentic about your appreciation of women, that is okay. Um, you can always ask a woman, are you uncomfortable with this? That's conversation, and I think that that is really important. And I think for men, be, be a girlfriend, you know? Be friends with your girl, with the girls. That is the most important thing. I think we've, there's been so much time that we've spent, you know, separating ourselves. I watch my daughter, her, it, and that's what I love about your generation, but even the generation coming behind you, this is natural for them now to be friends, just friends, and have those relationships and not worry about, like, boy, girl. So I think if you practice that, you, 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 you get so much. One of my best friends is a man, and it's, you know, I can talk to him about things that I don't talk to my husband about. And th that's really important to have those sounding boards. Those people, those women, for a man, there is going to be as big a mentor to you as the president of a company. Mm -hmm. Hugely important. And I don't want to send signals to anyone watching or in this room. I hugged you at the beginning of this, but we talked about it before. And I saw you in the hallway, and I felt like I knew you because I've, we've had this close friend, mutual friend, mm -hmm. for so long. But even then I said, do you mind if I give you a hug? Because I've yeah. never, even before the Me Too, I was never presumptuous about, come here, you know, like, hug me, or whatever. But some people are like that, and well, but I, and I feel bad because you know there. I mean, I know I'm kind of a hugger, you know, <laughs> and I feel like we are a little uncomfortable. But you know, the other thing about the Me Too movement is I think as women, you know the difference, yeah. and that I think is really important. You know the difference. If it feels weird, speak up. If it doesn't, it's okay. And and the other thing is don't abuse it. There have been some instances where I see some abuse happening mm -hmm. of it, and I think that that is the biggest mistake we can make right now. So, again, authenticity and communication, and you will all be fine, particularly you guys. Because, I'm, yeah, I'm just going to tell you, I like when a man tells me I look pretty. So I don't want to lose that. <laughs> right, right. But I like what you said about let's, it's important that men and women are friends. You yeah. know, just having that, having that camaraderie, and it's not just a guy thing or a mm -hmm. girl thing. So let, let's touch upon that a little bit more. I know you're working on a book. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you and you have be a girl principles, right? You have these principles about be a girl. Do, can you tell us a little bit about what your plans are for the book, what your goals are, and maybe as much as you want to share about the principles themselves, I'd love to hear it. Well, about three years ago, I was asked to do a keynote for one of my best friends in Nashville at Belmont College. And they basically said, you need to just do a keynote for 20 minutes about women. And my daughter was 10 at the time, and she was starting to, you know, change a little bit. And there was already Me Too conversations. It wasn't defined yet. But I started thinking about her and the changes that I was seeing and that when she was younger and six and seven and eight, you know, she would come out and she'd wear all these wild colors together and makeup and everything. And she felt totally gorgeous. And Mm. she had such, you know, self-awareness and she was happy. And she would tell us, you know, if she felt something was wrong, she stuck up for her friends. My niece, I remember the funniest story. She wanted um, my, at a party, she wanted my friend to open the cabinet to the computer. And she was like, open it, open it. I mean, she was stating exactly what she wanted. And I was starting to see my daughter change and become insecure. And I realized that, you know, as we continued evolving and getting older, that we a lot of us don't go back to that kid and that there were so many lessons and so many great things about being a kid or a girl and so I started thinking about like what those are so I've developed 14 principles of accessing your girl to be a better woman woman and guys you can read it too because it applies <laughs> to you as well um, so I did the speech and it was very successful and since then I've done I don't know 20, 25 speeches around the com- country about this and I'm probably three quarters away, away doing the book um, so I've started some branding platforms, I, I write a blog on the 40 plus girl I do these speaking thing. It's it's my next passion I love, absolutely love what I do but I love women, and I want to see them be the, you know, the best that they can be and, and the happiest. And you know, being the best that you, can, that you are is not always with happiness. And I think that we have an opportunity to be happy as we're successful. Well, you clearly have the teaching gene. I mean, I could see what you would enjoy getting out there and speaking and presenting and you just you've got it so give more of it give more of it and the book will be a good platform plus Mm. the blog and Mm. and the and the 40 plus brand um so i i it's interesting that i'm interviewing you because i've never been a big consumer of television Mm. but my wife got into er a long time ago back the original er not the not the repeats right and there was one show i probably watched the season or so with her and there was one show where um, Dr. Green, who actually is a, he went to high school in Santa Barbara, uh, the actor, um, he's passing away and he's in Hawaii, right? And Brother Is is singing that, the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Mm-hmm. I cannot hear that song today without getting emotional <laughs> and thinking about that moment of a fictional TV show. Mm-hmm. So what, do you have moments like that? Are there things where that song stayed with you or, or, or things you created that have always just been much more powerful than they should have been or, or that you thought they would be? Um, hmm. I mean, I'll, I, can I tell you a little story? That Please. It, it, 
it didn't occur to me until recently that this was maybe my calling. When I was a waitress, I worked at Marie Callender's, and um, I used to love to work the brunch thing because it was really busy and you got a lot of money and people were super grateful because they just came from church. And I was a really strong... Um, <laughs> I was a really strong waitress. I could like carry a lot. So um, they had this special. It was like seven ninety five, and you got super salad or chili, an entree, and a pie. So we would be slammed. And I could carry um, a bunch of chilies. I could put three here, and then I could hook two. So I was walking through the, the, the restaurant, and I didn't see the pie on the floor. And the chili went up, and it was just like all over me, dripping in places. Yeah. Um, and the restaurant was completely quiet, but all I heard in my head was, she works hard for the money. <laughs> so I think that was kind of my first calling. I've always been able to listen to a song and sort of see a scene or see a scene and call out some songs. Um, and that is super exciting. Uh, there was a, one of my early, in fact, my first movie on my own when I left uh, was called American Me. And there was this scene, it was a, a drug transfer from outside into a prison and how they got the drugs in there. And I watched the scene and it was so, um, it was, it, it was so visceral. And I just forgot the song I used. Oh, oh my God. That happens to me all the time. Oh my gosh. But I have gray hair. Yeah. I'll remember. But that, that scene still really sticks with me. I Look... <sighs> I'm a girly girl, so I love um, uh, Breakaway in Princess Diary 2. That was, yeah, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that was really neat because it was originally, I found the song. um, It was part written by Avril Lavigne. I found the song for another Gary Marshall movie, uh, Raising Helen, and I played it for Gary, and he was like, yeah, no, I don't think it's going to fit in this dawn, but you know, I have a parade scene in Princess Diaries too. Maybe we'll use it there. And I was like, great. And um, I had Avril all ready to sing it, but then that was the, she decided to do that really like uh, punk album, and she didn't want to sing the, the song. The Jagged Pill. Or- ja- yeah, it was an album where she just went off. Uh, so uh, Kelly Clarkson had just won American Idol, so I approached her, and she sang the song. And that I still see that scene, and I still hear that song on the radio, and it mm. makes me cry. Mm. And I still, you know, Kelly's always saying to me, when are we going to do Princess Diaries 3? <laughs> right, right. Well, that's the thing, that, I mean, what you do is, it's, I know it's hard work, but it's, it's got to be fun and to be able to trigger those sort of emotions in people. You know, that all those years later, it's almost like a smell that brings back a memory. Like that song will bring back a memory, something from your teenage years or from a movie or from a mm-hmm. TV show. Um, I've got plenty more questions, but let's take another student's question. Hi. Um, so, obviously, you've made it very far in the entertainment industry. And I was just kind of curious what advice you would have to give for anyone that aspires to make it in the American entertainment industry. I, you know, I think the first person is connections. Make as many connections as you can. Uh, I was um, speaking earlier about um, not being afraid to ask, you know, ask people for advice, get people to take you under their wing. When people take you under their wing, they feel very protective of you. And people love, I think, unless they're jerks, they love to teach. They love to bring people up. 
and I think uh, that y your age, it, it, it's intimidating, but you need to get past that. And, and again, yeah, as many connections as you can make, as many internships that you can, you can take, um, as many opportunities to learn. Um, you know, I did so many free projects, but ev like I said, every one of them I learned from. But you're, you're, you're networking. Hmm. So it seems everything that works out seems obvious looking backwards, right? Hmm. So, um, again, I'm not an expert in the film industry, but just the way music became such a big part of film over the 40s, 50s, and hmm. then blew up in the 60s, Easy Rider, The Graduate, you know, Midnight Cowboy, all that. As an innovator and thinking about this new, not new medium, but new to you, television, did it just seem so super obvious to you? Like, why aren't we using music on TV like I've used it in the movies? Was that just sort of a frustration point of, or, where you couldn't get that through to people? Or kind of what, how, where was your head at when you moved over to TV? Did you think this was going to be a slog and you couldn't do it? Or did you just say, this is obvious, we've got to do it? Well, I saw that television was starting to be produced more like film. I mean, television quality about 15 years ago really started changing, you mm -hmm. know, with pro programs like ER, mm -hmm. um, uh, Alien. There were a lot of those shows. And they were, instead of just doing the electronic music, they were starting to access songs more and really look at the, the, the importance of a, sc of a score. And I was also frustrated in film because... I would work on a song, you know, in a show, and I'd have this record deal and everything, and then all the schedules would change. And one of the things about television is the show goes on every week, right, no matter right, what, which right. is really cool. So you could identify an artist, you could market it, and you knew it was going to stick. So part of the reason I got out of, out of film and took this job was because I was super excited about my marketing ideas mm -hmm. and platforming ideas and other ways of engagement with a show. What else could you do with it? So Barry Jossen, who was head of um, ABC, I had worked with him. He was a producer um, like 10 years ago. And he called me up one day and he said, I want you to come and start and run the music department. And I said, Barry, I haven't done TV since Beverly Hills 90210. Mm -hmm. And he said, and I think you said this earlier, he said, I want you to bring film quality music mm. to television. And I was, the light went on. And I was so excited because film, you know, budgets were getting smaller and, right. and soundtracks had died. And this was just such a cool opportunity. And, um, and I think I coined, I'm not sure. I we'll give you credit. I think I did that television was the new radio. Because mm. I remember thinking that, and I remember I said it in one of my early meetings when I was pitching to start the ABC Music Lounge. I was like, because television is the new radio. Because mm -hmm. it is. I mean, now you watch a television show, and I'm sure all of you have Shazam to find a song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that leads into to my next question. Is that you, you've done a number of innovative things with Nashville, where you had the concert series and, and the multi-platinum albums. Um, and then you created the Music Lounge as another way to, to cross-market music. But you've broken, or, I mean, I won't give you sole credit, but you've been part of breaking so many 
like huge, huge, huge acts. So shows like Ugly Betty, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, etc. Ed Sheeran, Sam Smith, Casey Musgroves, Mary J. Blige. So which of, are there other artists that I'm not listing that you're most proud of, of, of helping introduce to, to you know, the worldwide population? Or are there, um, is there any song or particular, you know, that you felt like that song needed to be heard, that artist needed to be heard, and you were happy to be able to give them a platform? Oh, God, there's a ton of them. I bet there is. Yeah, you know, one of the, the funnest things about my job is uh, discovering new music. And, uh, you know, I, was, I, I love to go down a Spotify rabbit hole. Mm. I can, like, start doing that, and it's like two hours later, I'm like, the heck mm-hmm. and you like my playlists are crazy because you know i'll be like oh that's good for that oh that's good for that so i love doing that and um i also have the honor that i can call these bands that i you know hear and ask them to come and play for me i don't even have to go see them hey, anymore can I come next time? yeah absolutely <laughs> we have like three to four um showcases a week wow. in our offices we have a dedicated room so these bands come and play, and the reason I love it is because we're, it's a small room, so we ask them only to bring, you know, a guitar and maybe, uh, you know, just a couple of instruments, and they, they sing it acoustically, and it gives us an opportunity to really focus in on the lyrics and mm. the melody, and then you get to talk to them and to find out, like, what's their passion, why they named themselves the, you know, the Purple Radishes or whatever, uh, and you kind of fall in love with them, you know, and for me as a music head, you know, I still fall in love with bands, and to be able to give them an opportunity to find just that right visual that's just going to make it come alive, there's nothing better than that, and I will never get tired of that, mm. you know, so so finding those completely unknown bands and giving them opportunity on, right. on because it was interesting, um, about eight years ago, this research guy from Universal called us and he said, hey, I have all this information on the value of music in shows. I have like statistics. And he was like, would you like me to come present it? And I was like, yeah. I'm thinking, I can't believe your your company's allowing you to do this, which they didn't know. (laughs) So we got him in and he was telling us that a use on one of our TV shows, even like a background use, like there were, there were numbers in the 1600s. Wow. Uh, uptick in sales. So that's power. That is super, that's amazing. And, you know, with record company, the business dwindling and, you know, their budgets and everything, we have the opportunity to keep music alive. And right. that right. to me is what... Right. And, and, that, so and that connection where you're the two-screen experience where you're, I'm, I'm buying the music, I'm downloading the music after I, after I shazammed it and figured out who the artist was and, or, or maybe I get the whole, the whole album or whatever. It's super powerful. Hopefully buying it. I know, I know. Come on, you guys are buying stuff, right? Um, let's take the next student question. Who has inspired you most when it comes to writing and speaking on women's issues and how so? Well, my daughter... For sure, and my niece, because I see them coming up, and I want to make sure that they can be everything that that is available. Um, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I hate to say it, but Trump sort of keeps me fired up <laughs> on um, women's issues. <laughs> on women's issues, yeah, yeah. You know, I can write a really good blog after a tweet of his. Um, <laughs> 
Um, but, um, but women, girls, yeah, you guys, and you guys. <laughs> so you don't have to answer this one. Hmm. Um, is, there, is there an artist that we'd be surprised that their behind-the-scenes persona just isn't what we think it is? Is there some, I don't know if you're comfortable hmm. talking about people on that level, but... Well, I mean, Lady Gaga, she's probably one of the most authentic sort of just natural, you know, if she was sitting here, you could have a full-on conversation and forget that she was Lady Gaga, for sure. Absolutely. She's just so I interviewed amazing. Her, <clears throat> I interviewed her manager, mm -hmm. right, the, her original manager, mm -hmm. and he said almost the same thing. He said when Lady Gaga walked into his office, she was a nobody, he was a nobody. He said she was the same person that she is today, mm -hmm. which you can't say about a lot of people that, that get ultra-famous. Yeah, we used her. We, a friend of mine who works at, worked at her label came and said, we have this woman. Her name is Lady Gaga. She's going to be huge. You should do something with her. So we put her in a promo of Dirty Sexy Money, and she's crawling down the table with money flying everywhere. And we all just sat there, and we're like, oh, my gosh, this woman is going to be huge. And there she was. Um, yeah, Sarah Bareilles, uh, you know, she played at, um, I, I gave a baby shower for someone and she played in my living room and then subsequently paid at my house three more times. She's just, mm. she, I'm, I feel like, she, I feel like she's sort of my, she could be my daughter because I, I gave her her first chance. I used her in a ton of stuff and look at her. I mean, she's an amazing singer, but she's doing Broadway. You know, she just wrote a script. I'm so proud of her. And That's she awesome. just remains genuine and beautiful. Anyone that wants to go to school with Lady Gaga, it's a very <coughs> she's a very inspirational person. She worked her ass off, literally doing sometimes three shows a night, mm -hmm. where she would jump in a van, go to another club, do a show, jump in a van, go to another club, do a show. She, she earned it. Well, and she, you know, with the, I live in Thousand Oaks, and with the fires and the shootings and everything, she has been, she's been in Thousand Oaks doing work for the last five days. She's amazing. And she can sing her <laughs> off. Yeah, that doesn't hurt. That There's doesn't no auto-tuning with that Lady Gaga. Nice. I'm sure you've got those stories, which we uh, can't yeah, talk I'm about. Not, I can't but, tell you about those. <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm a big believer in healthy collaborations in business, personal life, etc., um, I'd love to, to the extent you're comfortable sharing your collaboration with Shonda Rhimes. I mean, she's had some amazing success. I know you guys have worked together on some of those shows. Um, what is she bringing to the project that, that, you know, that you don't bring and vice versa? Like, how is that collaboration so successful? Well, the thing about Shonda, if you analyze each of her shows, you know, like if you have, for Stephen, okay, I'm not going to say his name, but there are producers, like you watch their shows and it's same formula, sort of same music, mm. same palette. They use the music in the same way. Shonda, if you look at her shows, every one of them is very, very carefully crafted musically. Sometimes she'll use, like on, on um, Grey's Anatomy, for instance, she used the songs in the emotional scenes. The songs were used very much in those emotional scenes and the score was more about the pace and um, energy of the show. Then along came, what was it, Private Practice. And she completely flipped it. And she used it completely opposite. The songs were what driving it. And the score was the emotional thread. Um, Scandal. Uh, she, used, she only uses old songs. She, 
I, I love the way that she always thinks about music as a character and how music is going to drive her show and what character and what, what, what music is going to perform for her. And that, I think, is amazing because it gives me, I, I know what to do. She gives me a palette. We don't have to figure it out. She always thinks that. And, um, you know, she drives us crazy, though, because <laughs> she, will, she will go into her, into her vinyl and find mm. B-sides oh. that she wants to use, which is awesome, you know. But is it hard because you have to dig up the rights and find well, the Well, we kind of know where the rights are, but a lot of times she'll pull it on us like the <coughs> night of, oh. that we're mixing. So, you know, there's been at least a couple of times where we've already, already print mastered. Print mastering is when you kind of marry everything and you kind of put it all like together and you're shipping it off. We've already print mastered and she wants to change the song. And literally, it's airing the next night. Mm. So she, she's a challenge. <laughs> well, perfectionist, you know, that often yeah. takes that perfectionist and in, in, um, not willing to compromise if it's something you really believe in to get that quality. She does not compromise. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I don't like to ever go up against Shonda. <laughs> so it can be hard to work with those people, but we, we get the, as the recipients of that talent, uh, we get the benefit. Mm. Let's take another student's question. In your bio, you talk about switching companies, and you mentioned and you mentioned something along the lines of you happily went back to work for your company. Um, what made the other company not so enjoyable, or what made working for your company more enjoyable? Oh, I don't know if that it was um, well. In the case of Polygram, um, we Polygram got bought by Seagrams, and uh, usually the company that buys the the, the bigger company, um, the smaller company. Sayonara. Um, so, uh, you know, people always ask me, do you, I don't want to go back to music supervision. Uh, I love it, um, but it's not a challenge for me anymore. Um, I want to go on to the next thing. Uh, I loved, I love being an entrepreneur. I love having my own business. It's, it's super, um, It's nice to be in charge of yourself completely. However, uh, the company that I work for is amazing, and they've really respected my sort of wild nature. I'm very lucky. Uh, I think you really have to you have to ask yourself if you love if you love what you're doing day to day. Because you know, a job is work, and sometimes it is going to be work, but. Are there things that like just inspire you? Like I was talking about, like you know, putting a song in a scene. Does that still make you really excited when you walk onto a scoring stage, and you know the orchestra plays the score? Does that still make you excited? Do you still love negotiating a deal? Which I do love to negotiate a deal. <laughs> um, yeah. So those are the things. So, am I ready to go on to the next thing? Maybe. But I. But every day I ask myself and I pinch myself. I'm in a, such a cool job so I think passion you know like I was saying earlier about my daughter you have to you have to follow your passion and support it so I'm sure the one of the most frequent questions you get and everybody you know 
they, they find out your position, they want to get a song and a show, and, and it's got to be a lot of pushing people back. How, I'd love to hear any, any creative or interesting stories of a band that wasn't well-known that caught your attention, not necessarily what their manager did, but is there something a band did or an artist did that you just said, wow, like, that was creative, I've got to give this a listen, or the song is what, is what prompted you? Well, okay, the Walt Disney Corporation... Um, requires me to say I don't take any unsolicited <laughs> don't send her material. However, um, I've been known to bend that rule uh, <laughs> because I do love Spotify and I do love going to festivals and listening to music and all of that. Um, I think the biggest advice I would say for a songwriter or an artist or anybody is know your audience. If I get people emailing me all the time or texting me saying, Hey, what are you working on? What do you need? I mm. completely ignore those mm. because you know what? You should know what I'm working right, on. Right. You know, do your homework. You know, know what my what I'm what I'm working on. You can get schedules. You can know if I'm in post. If you send me a song and you say, "Hey, this song I think would be great for Gronish because it's it's this character's story right now." I'm going to listen to it because mm-hmm. A, it might be, and B, I know that you've done your homework and you've respected me and my position and my time. So I would say really doing your homework of who you want to, you, yep. who you want to pitch. Yep, and that's I've I, I've heard another person I interviewed give similar advice in a different context, which is don't give me a job. Like don't send me an email asking me to do something for you. Mm-hmm. Make it easy for me to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, so for instance, if I said, hey, I really want to meet Dawn. I don't know her. I know you know her. Can you forward her the email below? That's a pretty low ask, right? And the email below will be like, hey, Dawn, you don't know me, but I know this other person. And something like that is a good example of don't, I'm not giving that person a job. I'm not asking to do a lot of heavy lifting. Right. Um, and I've done my research because that email about Dawn will, will be to the point and it'll show that I, you know, that I respect you and know your business as opposed to just some random right. solicitation. And be very specific. I yes. mean, a lot of people send me what emails and they're want? like a mile long. It's just like, hey, here's a song. This is what I think it would be great for. Yep. You know, take a listen. We can talk later. And I will click on and listen even though I'm not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> Accidentally, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, it's funny, though, that people, I don't know if it's just they're, they're nervous, but they don't, what's the ask? I'll get these emails that are long, and I'm like, what do you want? Like, just yeah. put it right in front so I can see what you want. Yeah. And if I can help you, I will. <laughs> Let's end on, on this last question. So um, the TV that I watched growing up is very different from the TV that probably you grew up with, and certainly it's different from the TV of today, right? Uh, with, with just being able to DVR everything and stream it online. Where do you see television going, this whole cut the cable and everything? Where do you see it going the next five or so years? I don't think we're ever going to cut the cable. I don't, you know, I mean, I know my daughter does not watch television a lot. Right. But when you go to these, um, these uh, tech festivals, um, the biggest, widest, loudest, most colorful television is always the one that people are interested in. I think we will always have TV in our house. Uh, I, I think that, you know, a, a real opportunity with, with television now, you know, it, television 
has always been sort of bifurcated. Like CBS is the, the channel that you go to for your um, your crime shows. ABC is the women's channel. You know, I, th- I think those work are going to probably always stay in that in that way. And I think that it's going to be very. I hope not hard for the broadcast, the big networks to survive. Um, but I am very excited about all the content that is being created, and I and I look forward to sort of the next phase when we do get back to co-viewing, uh, family viewing, mm. opportunities of sitting around together and watching television. I think for the last mm, five years we've been so about like, well, what do you want? And it's different from what you want. And I and I'm seeing that there is this opportunity and there is sort of a wave of getting back to. Um, programming that everyone loves. I know that um, in the last three years, the musical has become something that people love now. I mean, La La Land, I think, was breakthrough. Uh, Hamilton did, you know, huge things for um, for Broadway, and I think we're going to see that. And I, you know, I look around um, you, when you like when you go to Hamilton, you see families there. It's not just. Right. You know, and so I think that I think that is what we're going to see is is more family programming, and to me that's really exciting because it means people are getting together. Right, instead of sitting in their separate rooms, yeah. looking at the screen. Right. I, hope, I right. hope you're right about that. I, I, that's what that's my goal in entertainment. That's fantastic. Well, thank you again for coming, Don. This has been yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. You. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.